Whenever the uh, Secret Service um, trains new personnel, part of their job is identifying counterfeit money. And what they will do is this. They will not bring out counterfeit money to train new personnel with. They don't show them all the counterfeit money. What they do is they show them the real thing, and they tell them this. We want you to memorize the real thing. Study it. Know it. Get it down. So that when you see something that's counterfeit, you'll recognize something's not right. You may not be able to tell exactly what it is, but you'll know something here is not right. That's exactly what I want to do with the Word of God in you. That's what the people of God should do. We should be in this. We don't need to read about everything that comes along and get caught up in all the other stuff that is, you know, you've got one fad, one wave of something after another. We need to constantly be in the Word of God so that when we come across something that's not right, we may not immediately be able to tell you this is what's wrong or that's what's wrong, but we will know something here just doesn't measure up to the Word of God. Well, that's exactly what Peter was doing in 2 Peter, uh, if you've got your copy of God's Word, in chapter 1. He wanted his people to know where Scripture came from. He wanted them to be so aware of it, so uh, immersed in it, uh, that they knew where the Word of God came from. So listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Know this first of all. Now, this is what you know. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. This isn't, this isn't a book that was made up by man. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, what Peter wanted them to know was this. He says, I want you to be immersed in the Word of God. Uh, Peter, if he was anything, was a good pastor. He was a good shepherd. All I've got to do is just look back one page in my Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5 and look at verse 2 where Peter says this, shepherd the flock of God among you. He's talking to, I think, the pastors, and he says, this is your job. You shepherd the flock of God. Now, what is that? There are a number of things that are involved in that. Debbie's going to talk about that for the next four weeks to the ladies. She'll describe that. But there are two primary things that, it, that a shepherd had to do. Number one was he had to feed his flock. He had to feed them. He had to nourish them. He was the one that had to go out and find the food. That's why shepherds always out there with sheep is because he's the one, as the 23rd Psalm says, leads them to green pastures. It's the shepherd who does that. That's the number one thing God gave to me to do in every church I've pastored, and that's this. I am to give the priority of my gift and ability and time and energy into teaching and preaching the Word of God. The second thing is guarding you. You know what you call a sheep without a shepherd? A snack. It's a snack. It's just waiting for something to eat it. So he's out there, and while he's looking for these green pastures, he's also noticing everything that's out there that would be harmful, anything that's predatory toward the sheep. And so he's got to guard the sheep from what would come in. I have to do that, I, and you don't know me well enough yet, but I, I guard very closely the pulpit of the church that God's called me to. 
You don't know, you guys don't have a clue how many people write me during the course of a day and want to come in here and speak to you. You just don't even know how many folks want to come in here and speak to you. They want to come and pitch their ministry, their mission, their this, their that, or the other. They're always wanting to come in. I bet you I've turned down three or four today. I just hadn't answered them uh, because I'm not going to let them do it. I don't have a clue who they are. I'm not going to let somebody come in here and fleece the sheep of God in this place. So I guard you against those that would come in here. The second thing is I have to guard you against your own self. I have to watch out for you when you won't watch out for yourself. Now, most of you think, well, I don't need anybody watching after me. Well, then I don't know why you're in a church and why you have a pastor. That's why God's put me here. Because I find that a lot of Christians get off into some goofy stuff. And I'm here not to needle you or to just, you know, be a thorn in your side, but to, to, I'm here to watch over you, and I'm going to do it. So that's what a shepherd does. So that's why I bring you back. This is what I think is the priority here. Listen, with Peter, do you understand that when Peter wrote this, when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he was, we think, just maybe months away from being executed. When Peter writes 2 Peter, it's the same thing for him. He was just months away from being executed. In fact, listen to what he says. I'm back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. In other words, I'm fixing to die. They're going to put me to death. As also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now, where did he do that? He did that back in John chapter 21. Do you remember when um, Jesus was talking to Peter? And Peter wanted to know, well, you know, what about, what about this guy that's following me? He's talking about John. Jesus said to him, listen, what's that to you? That's not, you, you tend to what I'm telling you to do. And what Jesus told him was this, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you, bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. It kind of gives you the answer right there. So over here, Peter says, I know Jesus told me this was going to happen. I know it's going to happen. Verse 15, what does it say? Look for the next pope to pop up. No, that's not what it says. That's not his concern. He doesn't say, this should be my succession. This is how you will carry out the success. This is who will vote, and this is who you will vote for. He says this, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. He says, I am going to give you the word till they cut my head off. And at the point they do that, then I want to have given you the word so much that you know it. You can recall it. There you go. That's good. Y'all just sit there, okay? If y'all were Pentecostals, y'all be running around this room right now. Well... That's the concern of Peter, and it's my concern that you know the Word of God because by Peter's day, there were already those coming in and challenging the Word of God. I refer to Gnostics from time to time, and at some point along the way uh, through tonight, maybe other, uh, other Wednesday nights, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, there were Gnostics of every stripe. I mean, they were Baskin-Robbins. There were 32 different flavors of Gnostics. Uh, some believe this, some believe that, some believe the other. But let me just give you an example. Marcion was a very wealthy guy. He was a, 
guy that uh, operated in trade, shipped things in and out uh, of uh, that part of the world, and was influenced greatly by a Gnostic who was, and by the way, a Gnostic is somebody who did not believe that Jesus Christ was God or a man. Uh, One set of Gnostics believed that uh, he was spirit, but he just faked everybody out. They, They even said that when he walked along the shore, he didn't leave a footprint because he was spirit. He was not flesh because flesh is evil. Well, there were those that believed that. There were others that believed Jesus was the man and Christ was the spirit. And uh, these Gnostics would say that Christ came on Jesus at his baptism and left him before the crucifixion. So there was this guy by the name of Marcion who was influenced greatly by this Gnostic, and he began to put together Scripture. He rejected the Old Testament. He said the Old Testament God was mean, he was vengeful, and he didn't like him, so he just set the Old Testament aside. And he came to the New Testament, and he really didn't care for the Jews either, so he began to pull out of these New Testament writings. By the way, let me tell you, this is in 140 A.D. In 140 A.D., most of all this was put together. The Old Testament clearly was put together by then. Most of the New Testament was already coming together by 140, 150. In 140, he begins to pull out. He pulls out Matthew because Matthew wrote from the perspective of writing to the Jews about their Messiah. He pulled out the Gospel of Mark. He pulled out Hebrews. He didn't like Hebrews. It's too Jewish for him. And so the Word of God was already under attack. So you go from that day, 140 A.D., just after the death, not long after the death of Paul and Peter, and you go all the way to our day, and I keep referring back to a book called The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, and I do that for this reason. I think that that book has had a profound impact on a lot of people in the church, and it has had a real influence on Western civilization. That came out in 2003. In uh, about 2004, and I think that was the launching pad for this whole new wave of atheism. There's been this rise of atheism in our day called the new atheism. There are four men. They're called the four horsemen. I believe that that book launched this. Um, uh, Oh, gosh, my mind just went. That's Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett right there on the bottom. And um, that guy just died not long ago. I can't think. Hitchens, Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens and Harris, right? No, Richard Dawkins. Dawkins. Thank you, Rick. Uh, Richard Dawkins. Those four guys right there, four atheists, I think really were emboldened by Dan Brown's book. These four guys got together in 2007. His book came out in 2003. I think it launched all of this. And in his book, he not only denies the deity of Christ, but he also attacks the Word of God. On page 231 of the Da Vinci Code, there's a conversation by two of the major characters in the book. And listen to what they say about the Word of God. The Bible is a byproduct of man, not of God. The Bible did not magically fall from the clouds. Now, Dan Brown is right about that. It did not magically fall from the clouds, but he's wrong in the fact Uh, that it is not of man, it is of God, and God gave it to man. And that's really what I want you to look at tonight, and that's what I want to share with you over the next little bit. 
Dan Brown says you need to take the 27 books of the New Testament and just put them aside because you need to pick up the 80 Gnostic Gospels. They give you a clearer picture of Jesus Christ. Now, um, I go back to say this about truth and facts. If you are free to make up your own truth, then the facts don't really matter. When he says you should pick up the 80 Gnostic Gospels, there's only one problem. There are not 80 of them. And if you don't believe me, let me quote an expert on that, Dr. Scott McKnight, who is New Testament professor at the University of Chicago. He is an expert on the Gnostic Gospels, and he says, we have no idea where Dan Brown came up with that figure because there are not 80 Gnostic Gospels. Now, you're not an expert on that. I'm not an expert on that. But I'm going to read to you a couple of excerpts from the Gnostic Gospels. And I bet you can pick up that there is a difference between a Gnostic gospel and the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or any part of the Old Testament or New Testament. So let me just give you just one, the first example of a Gnostic gospel. Now listen, y'all listen up carefully now, because I want you to tell me, does this sound like scripture? Here it comes. When Jesus was a boy, he killed a child by pushing him off the roof. That, that, that's hard to tell right there, right off the bat, right? When he was accused, he responded by using his power to raise him from the dead. In fact, Jesus apparently used his special power for impish personal reasons until he grew up, and then he used his divine powers to accomplish God. Now, does that sound like anything you've read in the four Gospels before? Did that tell you anything new about Jesus that you think is credible? Well, let me give you the second. The second is this. Now, listen, listen to this. This kind of goes to the Old Testament. After the fall, Adam devised a plan for Eve and him to return to the Garden of Eden by standing in different rivers. He stood in the River Jordan for 40 days, and Eve, being weaker, was to stand in the Tigris for 34 days. But the devil appeared to her again, and she came out of the water on the 18th day, ruining the plan and incurring Adam's deep displeasure. That'll change your life right there, won't it? <laughs> Number three, inhale. This comes from the Gnostic Gospels that we're told we should pick up and read and put the Bible aside. Inhale, blasphemers are hung by their tongues. I'm not going to tell you what they do with fornicators. But if people are asked, listen, but if people ask God for deliverance, all of hell would be empty. However, no one is to know this because if they do, they will sin even more. Now, that's just goofy, folks. That just doesn't even make sense. Uh, I have read parts of Gnostic Gospels before. I am by no means an authority, not anywhere close to that. But I can tell you, anybody, my grandsons down here, I'm certain could pick up on the difference between a Gnostic Gospel and what is Scripture. Satan is a master deceiver. Master deceiver. Part of his deception is that he is not only a deceiver, he is an imitator and a counterfeiter as well. You need to understand that Satan deceives 
even, the Bible says, Jesus said that if the days, the last days were not shortened, that even the elect would be deceived. That's how cunning he is. I've known through the years so many people in the church to be just completely deceived by something that Satan was sowing into their own lives. Let me take you all the way back to when you're introduced to Satan in Genesis chapter 3. And look there with me just for a few moments. Genesis chapter 3 and beginning in verse 1, this is where we are introduced to him. And this is the one, now I'm working towards showing you something, so just kind of follow along with me here. Um, he is the deceiver. He's going to deceive you about the Word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now does anything there just jump up off of the page at you? You've got a snake talking. Does that not get your attention? <laughs> now watch it, watch it this. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field and the Lord God, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you not only have a talking snake, that thing is talking theology now. Has God said? Indeed, did God really say this? It comes in the form of a question. It raises doubt in the mind. It raises this question, did I hear it right? Did I get it right? Did I read it right? You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Do you know what he's doing here? It's called revisionist history. He is revising the word of God. He's rewriting the Word of God. He's editing the Word of God. He's bringing doubt into the mind about the Word of God. We have a generation that that is exactly where they are. Can I give you just an illustration? It's not even in my notes, and yes, I can do it. Did any of y'all see the movie Dunkirk? Do you know the story of Dunkirk? Did you see the movie of Dunkirk? They, they do it in the movie, and it is, it is an actual part of the history when those some 350,000 British troops were there on the, on, the, uh, on the shores of France with no way to be delivered until this armada of boats come over and pick them up. They send back a one-statement telegram, but if not. That's all they send. That is, uh, the British officer in charge of all the British troops there on the beaches at Dunkirk radios back a single telegram back to London, back to Churchill, but if not. Do you know where that comes from? Oh, come on, y'all. The three Hebrew children. We will not bow down. Our God will save us, but... If not, we ain't going to worship anyway. People used to know Scripture that well. People used to know the Bible that well. Even soldiers on a beach about to be killed knew the Bible that well that they could send a telegram with all assurance, it'll be very clear, we are not going to surrender. That's what the British were saying. They can come and kill us. You don't have to come and get us. We are not going to surrender. They'll have to kill us all right here on this beach 
But if not, if you don't get here, but if not, don't worry, we won't surrender. Man, ah, boy, I could just, ooh, that's just good stuff right there, isn't it? Anyway, we used to know the Word of God that way. We don't know the Word of God anymore. Satan comes, and he's such a deceiver and an imitator. He comes with this counterfeit. Now, let me tell you, everything that God has, Satan has got a plan for. Now, let me just give you an illustration. God has a plan for sex. Satan has a plan for sex. God's is fulfilling. Satan's plan for it will leave you tearing your hair out, wondering, will I ever find the perfect person that's out there that will finally satisfy me? God has a plan for medicine. Satan has a plan for medicine. It's called addictive abuse. It's called uh, being addicted to medication. It's called being addicted to that medicine that God has a good plan for. Uh, God has a plan for music. Satan has a plan for music. God has a plan for your life, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He's got a plan for your life, but let me let you in on something. Satan's got a plan for your life too. So everything that God has, Satan has got a counterfeit plan for. Now, I'm going to show you this in Scripture, and I'm eventually leading to something. And uh, I'm taking this night to do this because between 70 and 313, the New Testament is coming together. So that's what's taking place in church history right now. And I want you to understand and know the Word of God and know what you believe about the Word of God because many of you are going to have folks come up to you at work and they're going to say, why should we believe the Word of God? Well, God's got a plan. Satan's got a plan. He is a great counterfeiter. He's a great imitator. Take your Bibles and go with me to Revelation chapter 16 and let me show you. Let me take you, this, uh, take you a step further in this. Revelation chapter 16 and you get over to verse 13 and I want you to notice something. It's going to speak of three people, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Now, who is the dragon? That's Satan. And out of the mouth of the beast, now there's a great debate about the beast. Is it a kingdom? Is it an empire? Is it a person? I think you can argue that it's both. Um, and I'm not going to get off into that, but for tonight's purposes, this is basically Antichrist. Uh, the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, you've got three right there. Did you notice that? Out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. What comes out of their mouths? Three unclean spirits like frogs. You've got three right here that I would call the unholy trinity. All the way through the Word of God, you're going to see the trinity. You can go back to Genesis chapter 1, and it speaks of God speaking and the Holy Spirit hovering. And through the rest of the New Testament, we're told that it was God who, it was Jesus who was doing the act of creating. You see, all the way through the Word of God, this trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and just as, as God is Trinity, Satan comes and he tries to counterfeit and imitate that. You see this unholy Trinity here. Now look back to chapter 13 and let me take it a step further. Let me show you what, what he does in trying to imitate God. In verse 1 of chapter 13 of Revelation, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now here, sea is symbolic and it means the people the nations. 
up out of the peoples of the earth, up out of the nations, comes this one having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear. Now, I think he's referring here to a nation, an empire, but then he switches back and forth. I think he's going to go back to an individual. And the dragon gave his power, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, I think he switched back to this person. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain. His fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Just as Satan tries to counterfeit God in this unholy trinity, now there is coming a time in the future where he's going to try and imitate the resurrection. Now, let me let you in on something very quickly. Number one, Satan is not omnipotent. He does not have all power. Um, You remember, he comes before God, and God uh, looks at him. He comes in with the sons of God, and he looks at him, and he says, hey, devil, what you doing? He says, I've been to and fro in all the earth. And he says, have you noticed my man, Job? And uh, the devil says, he doesn't worship you for nothing. He says, you've given him all this stuff. If you take your hand off of his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you can touch his stuff, but you can't touch him. Now, this is, y'all, look, y'all ought to be taking a note somewhere. (laughs) Satan doesn't have the power to do that. Only unless God allows him. He comes back when Job doesn't curse him because he's lost everything, and he says, ah, skin for skin. You let me touch him. And God says, all right, you touch him, but you can't take his life. You can't take his life. You can touch him. You can make him sick. You can do all these things to him, but you can't take his life. God is omnipotent, not Satan. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. I personally don't think God, I I personally don't think Satan knows your thoughts. And you say, well, how in the world does he get at me so well? Because he knows you. He's observed you. He is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at one time. He can only be in one place at a time. He's not God. So he cannot raise the dead. That's something God and only God can do. But he is such an incredible deceiver right here. Let me just read something to you out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is such a deceiver that he is going to be able to deceive uh, the world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and listen to this. For this reason, I don't have time to give you all the context, but just listen. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. I could take you to Romans chapter 1 and show you the same thing where man just gets to the place where he's just rejected God, that God turns them over. And listen, they will not worship the creator. All they want to do is worship the creation and the creature themselves. So Satan comes and he imitates everything that God tries to do. He is a perfect counterfeiter. And so he's going to come and he's going to deceive you about the word of God. He's come and he's deceived the world. That's why people by the millions will pick up something like the Da Vinci Code, read it and say, oh, this is truth. It is just a delusion and a lie. 
So, that's all introduction. Y'all ready now? I hope you've got a pencil and something to write with because I want to give you uh, Scripture and I want to take you through Scripture and I want you to be able to see tonight what the Word of God has to say about itself. Go with me in, in, in very first to Exodus chapter 24. Now I'm going to give you a very quick, very brief, very clear outline of what Scripture has to say about itself. And this is going to be the Old Testament. I'm not even going to be able to get to, what, uh, to the New Testament until after we come back after these next four weeks. Look with me at Exodus chapter 24 and verse 4. Look at what it says right there. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, if you want to know how did we get Scripture, when did the Word of God come from, how did it come to us, look at what it's saying right here. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, just follow that. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31. It's the last book of the Pentateuch. Moses is about to die. He's speaking to a new generation. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 9. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. So do you see what's taking place? Moses is writing this down. Verse 26 of Deuteronomy chapter 31. This book of the law, uh, take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant uh, of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. So he's written now, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He writes that and he hands it over to the Levitical priest and he says, now you go in and you set this down next to the ark. You put it down next to the ark. It is there. The Word of God is there. And when you need to read the Word of God, you get the Word of God and you read it. It is there constantly as a witness. In fact, let me show you something. If you're still there in Deuteronomy 31, look at verse 22. So Moses wrote the song. That's the song that you read back in Exodus chapter 15. When they crossed over the Red Sea, God parted it, and then he covered up the Egyptian army. So Moses wrote this song. He wrote the song down and he taught it to the sons of Israel. That's the process right here is what you're seeing. Look over at Joshua chapter 1. Just a page or two over, Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. What is he talking about? He's talking about the five books of Moses, the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch. That's what he's talking about. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. Now go to the end of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. And I want you to listen to what it says there about Joshua, verse 26. Joshua 24, 26, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Now Joshua has written. Where'd the book of Joshua come from? Joshua wrote it. And he's going to give it back to him. He puts it there in addition to the five books of Moses. Now watch. Go over to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. Folks, what I'm showing you is this. Very carefully, the Holy Spirit has left for us a word about how his word came to us. It's very clear. 
Well, where did the Bible came from? It came from men, just as Peter said, who were inspired by God, men of old, inspired by the Spirit of God, who wrote down the Word of God. Now, let me show you this in the prophets. Go to Jeremiah. I'll give you a minute. Okay, you there? <laughs> Jeremiah, chapter 36. This is, an inter- this is a fascinating chapter. The whole chapter deals with the writing of the Word of God. Jeremiah's a prophet. Um, you've, got this, you, you've got this crazy king, Jehoiakim now, who is king. It's toward the end of uh, the kings of Judah. They're, I mean, they're kind of spinning out. This is going to be very close to the end here. And uh, listen to what is said beginning in verse 1 of Jeremiah 36. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Josiah was a good king. Jehoiakim is a mess. King of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, take a scroll and write on it all the words which I've spoken to you. It's very clear. Now if you're there in that same chapter, look over to verse 17. There's a, there's a guy that's always with Jeremiah and his name is Baruch. Baruch is an amanuensis, a secretary. He's the guy that writes this down. And they come to Baruch. All of these religious leaders and all of these political leaders come to Baruch in verse 17. And they ask Baruch saying, tell us please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation, at Jeremiah's dictation? And Baruch said to them, he dictated all these words to me and I wrote them with ink on the book. It's very clear. It's not speculative at all. Well, Jehoiakim does not like Jeremiah. He does not like what Jeremiah has written. It doesn't fit his truth narrative. Um, So he has his aid. Um, There's a guy by the name of Jehuda who stands there and reads the scroll of Jeremiah uh, to the king. While Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it in the fire that was in the brazier. Now, here is what that was. You had a floor like this, and uh, they would have an indention in the stone. There would be this little indention there. I've seen them in ruins of places, just a little indention, and they would put live coals Uh, in that indention, and you would pull your chair up to it, and you had a space heater right there. There was a space heater. And so Jehudi is standing there reading the scroll of Jeremiah, and when he would finish with a couple of columns, here is Jehoiakim. He'd take his pen knife, and he'd just witch up and whack off a couple of it, pieces of it, and just put it in the fire, just warm his hand. He thought he could destroy the Word of God. That's exactly right exactly right. Look at what happens. Verse 27, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scrolls of the words which Baruch had written at the dictation of Jeremiah saying, take again another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim the king of Judah burned. There you go. My God. Ain't nobody like my God. His word stands forever. 
Now let me just show you something else. Let me show you what the Old Testament prophets thought about the other Old Testament prophets. Get over to the book of Daniel. What did they believe about the Old Testament? Well, you come to the ninth chapter of Daniel's prophecy, and there you read this. In the first year, chapter 9, verse 2 of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. Lord have mercy. It's long after Jeremiah's gone. We don't, we don't have a clue where Jeremiah is. He's dead by this time. He says, here is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He's going to pray. Now, God, 70 years is up. You, you said to your prophet, Jeremiah, and you say, where did he say that? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, before Daniel was a gleam in his daddy's eye. Listen to what the Lord said to Jeremiah the prophet. From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, which the Lord has come to me, I've spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Now listen to what he's going to say. Verse 11, the whole land, he's saying, you've not listened to me, you better listen to this. The whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. Isn't that amazing? 70 years. Daniel now, all these years later, sitting in that little room of his, pulls out the scroll of Jeremiah, reading Jeremiah 25, and comes across the place where God said to Jeremiah, I'm going to put him in Babylonian captivity 70 years. And Daniel starts counting up. And he's like, that was this, 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 this. We've been here 70 years. God, it's done now. That's just good. Y'all just sit there. That's just good stuff. <laughs> 70 years right there. The prophet Daniel knew that the Lord had spoken years before to the prophet Jeremiah, and he accepted it as the word of God. Can I show you something else? How much time is it? Where's my time? Okay. All right. Look at this. Let me take you back to 2 Peter for a moment. Did they do this in the New Testament? You bet. Y'all remember Paul and Peter had a pretty, pretty bad dust up. Y'all remember that? Paul just crawled all over Peter, just gave him what for. And you would think, you know, Peter, big old fisherman that he was, he wasn't going to get over that anytime soon. But I want you to watch what he says. He's going to mention the writings of Paul. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. He's talking about the coming of Christ. He says, Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him, in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Why hasn't he come back yet? Because he is patient and he's wanting people to be saved. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. He said there was a wisdom given him. That's his way of speaking of inspiration. 
as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which, now listen to this, Peter says, some of these things Paul writes hard to understand, which the untaught and untable, unstable distort. They were distorting the word of God in Peter's day. They were distorting the words of Paul in Peter's day. Already distorting the word of God. As they do, now what does he think about the writings of Paul? As they do the rest of the scriptures. He includes in the rest of scripture, well what was the rest of scripture for Peter? The Old Testament. He said the writing of Paul is on par, equal to the Old Testament. Let me show you one, two last things before I let you go. Let me take you to Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are turned loose. They've been arrested for preaching. They're turned loose. They go back. They're so excited. They get all their companions in Acts chapter 4 verse 23. And uh, they just start praising the Lord. Verse 24, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God. When they heard what had happened to Peter and John, they just, all their companions lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Now watch this, verse 25. Who by the Holy Spirit, do you think they understood what inspiration was? Watch this. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, and they quote Psalm 2. These Hebrews in the New Testament, just after the birth of the church, understood that the Holy Spirit, it was not David who was speaking, it was the Holy Spirit who spoke through the mouth of David, who was the servant of God, and they quoted Psalm 2. It didn't come about at the Council of Nicaea as a demand by Constantine that they put these books together and let's say this is the Word of God. It was long the Word of God before that. Let me show you what Jesus thinks about it. Look at Luke chapter 24. And I'm wrapping up. I'll finish here in just a second. But you get to chapter 24, the resurrected Christ. You know this story very well. Walking on this road to Emmaus. Comes across two guys. Oh, and they're just so despondent. And he says, what, what are these words you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? They stood still looking and said, uh, man, you're the only person in Jerusalem that have a clue as to what just happened. You don't know what's happening? He says, well, what things? They said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and the word in, 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 and in word in the sight of God in all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. We were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it is the third day since these things have happened. And also some women among us amazed when they were at the tomb early in the morning, they didn't find the body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it. Do you see that? Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it. It just exactly as the women had said it was, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, Jesus is going back to the Nevabim, the prophets. 
He's going back to the prophets. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses, the Torah, with all the prophets, then he covers the whole of the Old Testament. He goes from one end of the Old Testament to the other. He explained to them concerning himself in all the Scripture. There are a lot of people who set the Old Testament aside. Why? You know what Jesus says in John chapter 5 when he looks at these Pharisees? And he says to them, he says in John chapter 5, and I think it's verse 23, he says, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me. I read an article day before yesterday. It's interesting because I just said this in a sermon about Isaiah chapter 53, and they were questioning a rabbi about Isaiah 53, and he says it's so problematic we have taken it out of the reading for the synagogue. You better believe it. The whole whole thing's problematic for him. It's problematic for all of us because this is just Jesus on every single page right here. Every page right there. You come to... Paul in Acts chapter 24, and he's standing up before Festus and Agrippa. Felix was there when he first arrived. Felix was really a cat, but that's another another story for another day. He really was. He was something something else. You get over here, and uh, chapter 26, they don't know what to do with Paul. Festus has been recalled by Rome because he was so harsh. Felix comes in. He's kind of like a governor. He doesn't know what to do with Paul, so they wait until Agrippa gets there. And Agrippa comes, and as he's standing there, in verse 22 of Acts 26, we read, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. He said, Everything that happened to Jesus Christ, the prophets and Moses already predicted it, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he'd be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was was saying this, in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're crazy. You out your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Listen, Southwestern taught you too much. Amen. And Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I utter words of sober truth. Counterfeit? I think not. Credible down to the period at the end of every sentence. That's the word of God. Now, the Old Testament by this time in church history, by 313, had been together over 500 years. The rabbis had recognized it. All the books that you have in the Old Testament, different order in the Hebrew Old Testament. In fact, the Hebrew Old Testament ends with Chronicles. But it's still all the same books. Now, I'm not talking about the Apocrypha. But it's still all of the books that you have of the Old Testament, the 39 books, all in the Hebrew Old Old Testament, Old Covenant, the Hebrews for over 500 years from the time of Nicaea had already settled on what the Old Testament was, that it was the Word of God. And by the time you get to Nicaea, 
the New Testament has long been settled too. I want you to know backwards and forwards, up one side and down the other, so that tomorrow when somebody walks up to you at work and says, why do you believe that? You can say, it's very, uh, do what I just did with them. You'll wear them out. <laughs> just like I've worn you out, right? <laughs>